Back in the olden days, when restaurants were fully open, our family went to dinner with a friend and an elderly couple was ushered into the booth right behind us. And as the gentleman sat down, the booth went. And our two-year-old son, Ezra, like most two-year-olds, have, has ears that are calibrated to hear just such a noise. And so he stood up on the booth, he leaned over to the people behind us, and he said, oh no, you have to go potty. And every parent knows this is incredibly embarrassing, partially because you feel like your child is the only one doing this, right? This is the worst thing that's ever happened in public. This is exactly the reason that people invented online parenting forums so that they could know that no matter how embarrassing their child is, they're not as bad as someone else's kid. And so somebody wrote on a forum, we were sitting in a booth at a restaurant and my three-year-old was peeking over the booth at the people behind us and he hollered out, hey, why is this guy bald? She pulled him down and she quietly explained that we don't comment on people's appearances because we don't know if something that we say might hurt them. And he says, well, if I have a question, can I just ask quietly? And the mom says, of course, just ask, ask me by whispering in my ear. And so the waitress comes to get their order and before the mom realizes what's going on, she said, my son had leaned down over the man's shoulder and whispered in his ear, hey, why are you bald? <laughs> this happens in church too. One person wrote, my sister was at church one Sunday and our minister did a weekly children's message to get the kids more involved in the service. This particular week, he was discussing enemies and how we should treat them. He asked all the kids, what do we do to our enemies? And my three-year-old nephew, having watched my husband play Halo all weekend, said, oh, we kill them. We kill them good. She said, we transferred our membership the next week. We laugh at these ridiculous moments with kids, I think, partially because kids are just cute and partially because they're so convinced that whatever it is they're doing is gonna lead them to the result that they want, and we know it won't. I'm realizing recently that as kids become adults, most of us actually don't outgrow that. There are still things that come naturally to me that if I do them, won't lead me to the kind of life I want. What do you do when things that come naturally to you, not bad things, not evil things, things that are just common sense, don't lead you to the kind of life you want. I think that's where we pick up in 1 Peter chapter four. We've heard over the past several weeks that Peter's writing this message to a group of people in exile. So he's writing to a smaller community embedded within a larger community. And the larger community is bent on taking away the rights and the voice of the smaller Christian community, either passively by just ignoring them or actively by military oppression. And so Peter starts out this section of verses by putting their cultural moment in context. He says, the end of all things is near, starts out on a light note. And when I hear this, I picture, maybe because I've watched Left Behind too many times, people sort of being taken out of their cars naked, apparently leaving their clothes behind, God knows why. And then fireballs coming from heaven to destroy people. And part of what Peter has in mind here is judgment. But in a larger sense, what Peter's writing about here is a concept called the day of the Lord in which God will finally put things right. The things that are not of God on the day of the Lord are consumed. And the only things that remain are things that God has made new. And so Peter writes to this community of believers in exile trying to get them 
to adopt habits that are peculiar in their time, but are the only kind of habits that are normal to God. They're strange precisely because they're ahead of their time. That kind of life starts, he says, by being sober-minded and alert, which is kind of a strange way to start, isn't it? But Peter literally means here, the words that he writes literally mean, don't be drunk, don't be disoriented. And it seems to be incredibly strange until you realize that there are two people that Peter's mainly addressing here. The first we'll call the climber. They see their oppressed state and they cope with it by powering up by gaining all the resources and the connections and the clout they can in the community so that despite the fact that they're marginalized, when they show up in the public square, they have enough influence that they at least can't be ignored. The second person Peter is writing to here will call the flyer. They hear Peter's admonition that the end of all things is near. And what they do is they interpret that to mean that all that matters are spiritual things. Why would I worry about the plight of the poor in my community? Why would I worry about changing the policies, the procedures that happen in my neighborhood when all that matters really, these people think, is that people know Jesus? Peter writes to both of these people, the climber and the flyer, and says that they've both missed the way things really are. To the climber, he says, you're living your life according to patterns that won't get you the result you really want. If you get the praise of human beings, but you miss out on the way that God does things, who cares? And to the flyer, he says, it's possible to avoid being at home on earth so thoroughly that you'll never be at home in heaven because you've never practiced God's ways among people to whom you deeply belong. And so he says to both of these groups, don't be disoriented, but pay attention so that, he says in verse seven, you can pray. Peter's diagnosis here is an interesting one. He seems to say that alertness and prayer are connected, that the problem sometimes with the church's prayer life isn't that we don't pray enough, it's that we simply are blind to God's movement beyond our own selfish hopes. What if the biggest things you ask God for weren't for you? We sometimes have an image of prayerful people as folks who are somehow detached from the world. But Peter here seems to be saying that the people who pray the best are actually the ones who are most in touch with their surroundings, who know their neighbors well enough to linger in prayer, lifting their specific needs before the Lord. That's not common, is it? Nothing about that is common sense, but it's good. The inconvenient thing is that it requires spending time with people. That's exactly the point of Peter's next instruction when he says in verse nine, to be hospitable without grumbling. It was an expectation in Peter's day that if a guest showed up on your doorstep, you would house them for two days at least. It was also an expectation in Peter's day that you would resent every minute of it after they overstayed their welcome. And so Peter writes to a congregation who are already practicing what we would typically think of as hospitality and says to them, hospitality is more than bringing out nice linens or nice food, although it may include that. What it really means to live hospitably is to live an open life, to live a life where inconveniencing yourself for the purpose of people that are beyond your friends and family is what you expect in an average week. I wonder if you've met a person who did well at living an open life. 
I'm gonna give you a few things that tend to be true of an open life person. And I hope that as I do, you'll either write them down or jot them in your phone or just store them away in your mind later and ask, is this the kind of person that you are in your habits and your demeanor and your disposition in your everyday life? One thing that tends to be true of people who have an open life is that they move on purpose, but they're not in a hurry. I have a friend who volunteers in Marion well over 40 hours a week, gets 20,000 steps on her Fitbit most days, and wakes up every morning before the sun rises to pray, God, let me be a blessing to someone along the way today. She texted me this past Thursday that she got 37,000 steps on her Fitbit. She's 84 years old. She says that Christians never retire. And she finishes her day when her head hits the pillow by praying, okay, God, how do we do today? And as much stuff as she does, again, she's volunteering almost 60 hours a week in the community. You should see how fast she backs out of her driveway. As much stuff as she does every day, I don't think I've ever seen her in a hurry because she blocks off 10 minutes here, 15 minutes there of time that she expects other people to use. I think most of us end up doing the opposite of this. We are on a hurry, but without purpose. We don't know where we're going, but wherever we're going, we're going there fast and furious. And so we live our lives and our weeks often feeling like the prisoner of commitments that we made long ago. I wonder what would change about your life if you set aside 10 or 15 minutes in your morning and in your afternoon this coming week for other people's use. Another thing that tends to be true of open life people is that they have clear and kind boundaries. I'm realizing recently that Christians lie pretty often, just not in the same way as people outside the church. We lie by saying yes when we mean no. Do you want to come to this event? Yes. Do you want to serve in this way? Yes. It's not that we won't do things for others. It's that we'll do them. We'll just resent every minute of it. Some people I've met, though, find a way to commit to things so that their yes opens them up to obedience and their no also opens them up to obedience. I asked a friend for help moving a piece of furniture a few months ago, and I apologized for interrupting his day. And he said immediately, no, I woke up today and had an hour blocked off to help somebody. I won't say yes to you if I actually mean no. And I tested it a couple weeks later. I texted him and asked to move that same piece of furniture back to where it was. And he texted me, he said, you know what? I actually have today blocked off for rest. And if I say yes, I'll mean no. So to spare myself both guilt and resentment, I'm gonna ask that you find somebody else. And I was offended at first a little bit when I get the text back, but you realize that there's a way of saying no that opens you up to say yes for the things God cares about. Open life people have boundaries that are clear and yet kind. What would happen this week if you were more honest with your no, not just to get more time for yourself, although that may be important, but so that your life can be the kind of life that's open enough to be obedient when God calls you to give your time away. Another characteristic of open life people, the last one, and maybe the most important one, is that grace just emerges from them. I remember a friend of mine years ago told me that being in Christian community is a lot like whack-a-mole. And I thought that was the strangest thing I've ever heard. But he said, think about it. There are constantly things popping up that feel like they urgently need a response. Someone annoys you. Someone says something on Facebook that you vehemently disagree with and you sort of grab the mallet and you say, this one's mine. You know, this one's mine to whack. And he says, 
a lot of maturity that emerges as people belong in Christian community for long enough. A lot of maturity just lies in realizing that not every mole is yours to whack. There are things that annoy you that you'll be right about. That when you want to say something, God will just kindly, gently come alongside and say, you know, my child, you're right about that, but you should really shut up about it. I wonder what would happen this week in your life if when something that comes up that annoys you, instead of responding right away and grabbing that mallet, you pause for long enough to lift that person to the Lord and ask whether you're the person to offer the rebuke in the first place. Think about this. Do you know people in your life who do well at living an open life? They move with purpose, but they're not in a hurry. Their boundaries are clear and kind. And grace emerges from them. I want to ask you, is someone else that you can think of right now, not just people in general, but is someone specific thinking about you as a person in their life who offers them the grace of living an open life? If not, I wonder if Peter's instruction is for you. I wonder if the grace that you may need is the grace to be hospitable without grumbling, not just in your linens and your dishes, but in offering your time up every day to people who who can't pay you back. Peter seems to think that as we open up our lives, we'll be led to all sorts of challenging opportunities to love one another deeply. And he even says that this is especially important because love covers over a multitude of sins. And I've always wondered what in the world Peter means by this. And I'm still not entirely sure, but I've seen it in action occasionally. If you've ever been in a really healthy community, you'll find that people are just more open-handed with forgiveness. People don't hide their feelings when there's hurt or grief or injustice. People address them quickly both in terms of their relationships and in terms of policies that make the place more equitable. It's just that they don't stay permanently offended in ways that poison their relationships. I'm not talking about enabling emotional trauma here, I should say, or glossing over abuse of any kind. I think those are different situations that often have different paths to wholeness. What I am saying is that often in the everyday hurts of our lives, we have a choice usually to feed hurt and resentment or to feed forgiveness. And Peter seems to say here that when we choose between the two, when we're confronted with that choice, the Spirit will guide us toward becoming the kind of people who choose to feed forgiveness. And so as we lovingly and prayerfully open up our lives to others, Peter says, we're to use whatever gift we've received to serve others, administering God's grace in its various forms. Then he talks about speaking as if we speak God's own words and serving as if we have strength God provides. In other words, if what carrying God's grace for the day requires is that we speak, we can be sure that the benefit of our words will go far beyond our own ability to just articulate. They will be words that themselves give grace. And if faithfulness to carry God's grace requires that we serve, and it most always does, we can be sure that when we're alert, sober-minded, and prayerful, rooted in, this, in God's word and in God's presence. Our service will branch out from deep roots so that we can serve even when we're weary, even when we're tired, even when we're hurt in ways that give God's grace beyond what they would have if our, our efforts were just pointed at our own selfish purposes. 
We do these things, Peter says, not to be noticed by other people, but so that, he says in verse 11, these ways of being faithful will lift high the name of Jesus Christ and bring God praise. I remember being an RA in the second floor of South Hall at IWU. And I remember being called up to the third floor one day for what one of my residents said was a stretching emergency. And I had heard of nothing of the kind before. And I went up, I ran up the, the stairs to the third floor and I just froze in the door jam because there was an athletic training student who was trying to put his right foot over his left shoulder. And my roommate, having heard that there was an emergency and being very keen on seeing one, came upstairs behind me, saw me frozen in the door jam, nestled his head behind my back so he could look in and he said, oh God, help him, that ain't natural. <laughs> and I read this passage and I see the ways in which the habits that Peter's calling to us will stretch us. And I say with my roommate, God help us. That's not natural, is it? It's not natural in the middle of an argument to hear something that someone says about us that's negative and pause for long enough to get out of our anger and say, you know what, you're right. There are things in my personality and character that are baked in that lead us to keep having the same conflict. And I need to do some work on that. It's not natural or common sense when you have to consider a career move to be not upwardly mobile, but downwardly mobile or move away from loved ones or do a job that's harder for you because you're prioritizing ordering your life around the kind of things that build God's kingdom, not just your net worth. I heard a story this past week of a couple who in their retirement years, instead of buying a two-seater Mazda that they had hoped to buy, ended up buying a 15-passenger van so that they could bring children to church who had no other reliable transportation. So they would go and they would have the parents sign permission slips. The parents would get their free childcare and the kids would come to church. They ended up filling three 15 passenger van loads of children and many people ended up giving their lives to Christ in that church, being guided by mentors and disciples and people who loved them well. Those children had kids and their kids have kids and there are three generations of worshipers in this community because of one couple's faithfulness to do what wasn't common sense, but was good. And so I'm reminded by Peter's words here that you and I are called to a life of uncommon sense. To do things in our habits and our practices and our investments today that seem incredibly strange because they're ahead of our time but they make us the kind of people who are well-practiced at saying yes when God calls. At the end of all things, in Peter's words, all of our longings and our habits and our desires harden into fate. And all we're left with is the life that we've chosen all along. Either we chose and we keep choosing common sense and build a life that will become obsolete primarily because it's made us smaller people that are less concerned with God's kingdom than with our own. Or we say yes and we keep saying yes to the invitation of Christ who invites us to live lives of uncommon sense. Being renewed in our habits so that the things that God calls us to do, that we do at first with great difficulty, God helps us to do by the renewing of our habits naturally. So that we're in, at home in God's way of doing things. 
there are a lot of questions, I think, that have emerged both in my life and I think in our church's life from this passage. And so I'm going to invite you to consider those in the discussion guide that'll be on the website. But for this morning, I think maybe the question is just simply, what habit or practice seems unnatural to you now that will lead you into the kind of life God wants for you? And what's the first step? Maybe you need to schedule 15 minutes blocks of time in your morning and afternoon just for other people's use, expecting that along your way, God will bring someone into your day that needs the gift of that graceful time. Maybe you need to start saying an honest no to a few things, not just so you can back out of your commitments and do things that are more narrowly focused on yourself, although self-care is important, but so that you can say yes to God's invitation when he brings somebody into your life that needs your help. Maybe you need to apologize to someone for a harmful habit you've been keeping to yourself because it's just not natural for you to ask for God's help and ask for the help and healing that only comes from vulnerability and community. Maybe you need to carve out certain parts of your budget that'll specifically cover somebody else's needs, not just your own wants. Maybe you need to schedule an appointment for counseling because you've been neglecting your emotional hygiene and it isn't natural for you to ask for help. Or maybe, just maybe, you need to pray not just more, but differently so that the kind of things you're praying don't just benefit you, but so that you can be attentive enough to your neighbors and attentive enough to God's voice that the people that you find yourself lingering and burdened in prayer over are the people that God has called you to love beyond just your friends and your family. Whatever that is, I'd ask you to write that down and then schedule a time sometime this week, even if it's 10 or 15 minutes, to linger over what structural changes in your life will have to be brought about for you to be propelled toward the kind of habits God wants. And before you hit the parking lot or before you log out of the browser window, I'd ask that you just text the person who can help you make that step. Maybe someone who's skilled already at living an open life who can help propel you toward the kind of person God yearns for you to become. God, we thank you for your invitation to, to uncommon sense and to a life that while it feels unnatural at first is the only kind of life that really lasts. And so this morning, God, we pray that you would take our small acts of uncommon obedience of doing things that now seem to us unnatural and that you would do with them what you did for the fishes and the loaves, that you would take them and that you would break them and that you would multiply them and bless them so that they're useful, not just for us, but so that there are leftovers of our faithfulness that go on to feed people who are not currently in our life that will become important people in our life. Help us to have habits and dispositions and desires and schedules and routines and budgets that allow us to say yes when you call because we know you're faithful and you'll do it. It's in your name we pray, amen.